let's pray as we get started, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 10 tonight. It's going to be an interesting topic tonight as we talk about uh, biblical prosperity and generosity. And it's interesting how that word prosperity has gotten a really bad rap. And so hopefully we're going to de- take, the, take the myth out of that and, and be a myth buster on, on the negative aspect of that and see the positive life that's in it. So let's uh, dive in. Father, in the name of Jesus... What a privilege to be together as friends and family tonight. Right now, Lord, we consecrate our minds. We consecrate our hearts. We consecrate our wills. We consecrate our emotions. And we say, Father, teach us. We posture ourselves, much like Mary did at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. And we say, teach us. Order our steps. Lead us. Guide us into truth. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit, our advocate, our helper, our counselor, our comforter, to be our teacher, whom the Bible calls the Spirit of truth, who leads us and guides us into all truth. And we submit our hearts to you, Lord, as as the good teacher, as a rabbi, as an instructor. And we position ourselves as students before you in your word. Father, as we go through this study together tonight, I ask, Lord, that you would begin to peel back more layers of revelation for us, that we would have a deeper understanding and and a greater foundation in the scriptures, that we would find ourselves rooted and established in the word. And so, Father, I would ask that you wash us by the pure water of the word tonight. Speak into deep places tonight. I pray this would be practical for us. Father, may we walk out of this place saying, I got something I didn't know. I learned something or I've thought about something different than I, than I already had. Lord, I'm asking you to be a divine disruptor tonight for all of us. Because we want to stretch and we want to grow. That's our heart. Jesus gave us the mandate, the apostolic mandate, the missional mandate to go and make disciples. As we are going, we are to disciple the nations. But that starts right here. And so we submit our hearts to you. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking a favor for all of us that you would open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may know the truth that makes us free. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen Amen and amen. Let's dive right in. If you do have your purple book, you can open to chapter 10, Biblical Prosperity and Generosity. Uh, Depending on the stream or pool that you've been in, that can have a good or bad connotation, which is interesting. Uh, It's fascinating what has become in various settings divisive in the body of Christ. Things like the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that the current activity of the Holy Spirit, prosperity, those kinds of things have become divisive only because they're so powerful that the enemy seeks to, de- to taint them so that we won't go near them. Doesn't it make sense that the enemy would try to take things and disrupt and, and add something like a contaminant, almost like contaminating the water so you don't go to the water? contaminating what you need because if it's contaminated, you can't digest it. And so we've, I've watched this through my journey in Christ through the years as he has contaminated and tainted things, the very things the Bible talks about that we need to do and fulfill the mission that he's called us to. 
And so it's interesting how, how the enemy is very much a strategist. And in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, he's referred to as a schemer. He's a schemer. He has schemes against us and strategies against us. And unfortunately, he's had a lot of years to study us and knows us pretty well, right? And so anyway, when I say he, I'm referring to the whole realm of that, not Satan himself. He's probably, not many of us have ever bumped, against, bumped up against him, thank goodness. But uh, even if we did, we'd know what to do. Amen? Amen? Get thee behind me, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee. So as we dive in tonight, I, I just want to remind you about the harvest vision. I'm going to be talking about that this weekend. I'm going to be doing a message called Putting the Go in Gospel. Because a lot of times we, we talk about, oh, the Great Commission, the Great Commission. And I say, well, what is the Great Commission? And they're like, well, I think it's in the book of Matthew. I mean, it's just most people don't. It's not something that's preeminent. And yet in Matthew 6.33, we're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his way of doing and being is what that means. And all these things will be added. So there's, there's a sense in which we have been mandated to to commit ourselves to the first thing. The first thing is the kingdom of God. And so... I'm going to be talking about that and, and introducing some thoughts on that. So hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. And it's going to be a, in, in light of the harvest vision. And I've been actually leaning into calling it the harvest vision mandate. The word mandate's not like two bros going out on a date together, okay? Mandate is an order. <laughs> you just a little slow on the draw there. You just, you, five minutes later, we get, okay, we get a chuckle. So, uh... <laughs> At least you're listening, even if it's slow. So, uh, <laughs> so a mandate is, is an order. It's, it's a command. And so we talk about the Great Commission. There's a commission that we've been given. But it's a mandate. It's an order. It is an imperative that we are to go and do this. And so I'm going to be talking about the Great Commission, the apostolic mandate. And when, remember the word apostle. Anybody remember what the word apostle even means? Sent one. Sent one. And in our modern day, you know, aberration, the way we've, we would have brought it out today, we'd say that's a missionary. So the Apostle Paul was the missionary Paul. He did four or maybe five. Not sure. There's some, you know, discussion about whether there were four or five trips. But at least four missionary journeys where he was the sent one. He was out doing it. That's why he's called the Apostle Paul. He was a sent one. The disciples who became known as the apostles were sent ones. And it was Jesus that spoke to them directly, Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all the name. He told them to go. They became apostles. Not just disciples, but apostles. So they were sent ones. They were to live their lives on mission. And while that may mean Mexico, right, Sarah, it may also mean Fredericksburg or Harper or Lukenbach, or Center Point, or Comfort. It means where we live, where we work, and where we play, right? Wherever we are, we live lives, an apostolic life. We're on mission for God. So I'm going to be breaking that apart, but I just want to continue to keep the harvest vision in front of us because I'm asking you to join me in praying for that. In fact, speaking of prayer... I want to remind you, we're, we're in our 42 days of prayer. I'm going to pull up my, the one from today. And here it is. We're in day, day 18 of 42 days of prayer. I pulled the scripture out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. It says this, 
I tell you that if two on earth, two of you on earth, agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Those are pretty bold words from Jesus. But remember, we, James clarifies about asking amiss. You wonder why your prayers aren't getting asked as you ask amiss. It's because we have to ask according to the will of God. We understand the revealed will of God. We know for us, for me in the most simple place, it's the word of God is the revealed will of God. So his word is his will, his will is his word. And so that's where I start. But others have capacity to hear God at other levels, and I lean into that as well. We call that the prophetic gift, the prophetic grace. And in fact, my daughter Faith is at Bethel Reading this week, going to the School of the Prophets, learning how to hone her ability to hear God's voice. And what's been interesting this week, because she keeps texting us, and we're all extroverts in my family, so we keep getting texts back and forth. And uh, she's sending picture after picture after picture where she expresses what she hears in her heart, in her spirit, and in her mind. She expresses it through art. And so it's been fascinating to see the art that she's generating as she's feeling downloads from heaven, so to speak. She's hearing the voice of God, and it's coming out through her art. And um, I would not be surprised if there would be a day uh, that at some point we would have opportunities to even have an artist up here on the platform during worship expressing prophetic art while we're worshiping and interpreting what God's saying through art forms. Do you believe that God created the arts? I think it's interesting that God is the creative God. Elohim means the creative God. It's a creative element. We all have the Elohim element inside of us. That's why you appreciate a sunset or a cloud burst or something blows your mind or a puppy or whatever. You appreciate beauty. You appreciate aesthetics. It's because the Elohim element, God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so there's a creative thing about us. And listen, what's interesting about that is that even if you don't know Jesus, there's still that Elohim element in every person, right? All have been created in the image of God. So you've got people creating music out there in the world that you hear it and you go, whoa, that moved me. But that may not, you may not have heard it on K-Love. <laughs> but yet you will go, well, there's something to that. Well, there is something to that. It's the presence of God. Amen? Amen. So it's interesting how how we want to relegate, you know, speaking or hearing from God in just one way, and yet he's creative. I mean, he created Australia, folks. Come on, he's creative, right? He's amazing. It's the biggest thing ever. So he, he's, cre he's so creative, and we need to learn to appreciate and lean in to say to this next generation, what is it that you have that maybe my generation overlooked as a creative expression of the glory of God? Amen? But we need to foster that in the next generation, not stuff it down and say, oh, you can't do that here. We need to have an, an opportunity where we, they get to display the glory of God through their gifts. Amen? Amen? Boy, I just totally went off on a rabbit trail there. Hopefully that was an anointed rabbit that we just chased. I believe it was. But that's all part of the harvest vision and believing for a great harvest and what God is doing. But now I'm believing the harvest vision mandate because I believe it's a mandate from the Lord. At least that's how I'm, I'm taking it. So, Russ, if you'll go to the, to the, skip the John Eldridge quote there, and we'll go to where it says, remember this. You got that? Fantastic. So if you look on the screen, this is from the Purple Book. If, you've, if you did your work in there, it's in there. I just want to read this. And this is actually a quote from Paul 
the apostle, the missionary Paul. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, and you will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. It's interesting to me, and, and you know, God gives us the Holy Spirit within us, right? He abides in us. He takes up residence in us. He gives you the Holy Spirit and places the Holy Spirit in you for you. But he places the Holy Spirit upon you for others. I'm going to say that again because this is very important. He fills you with and, and, and allows the Holy Spirit to take up residence in you for you. But he releases his Holy Spirit upon us, Acts 1.8, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, 15, and 17, for others. And I don't know about you, I don't want to just this to be about me. I don't want to be a narcissistic Christian where it's all about me. My stuff, me, the disc test, the Enneagram, the, the... I mean, all those are great, by the way. I love the Enneagram. I'm totally a fan of those things. But I don't want this to be all about me and my stuff. Me and getting it all together while I'm ignoring a world that's dying and going to hell and shooting each other up out there. I don't know about you, but as school is starting back up, I'm feeling a little nervous for the first time. I was never nervous about my kids going to school. My kids are out of school, so I'm nervous for our kids as they're going back into a hostile environment. Amen? Amen. So, by the way, we'll be praying over our teachers, faculties, and students, not this weekend, but the following weekend. I will bring it up this weekend, but uh, we're going to actually have them all stand, and we're going to pray for safety around our kids. Amen? You know, it's weird that we have to pray safety over our children. I, I want to pray for their education that they'd be world changers. But we've got to start with safety, right? So it's a different world out there. He gives the Holy Spirit in you for you. But he gives the Holy Spirit upon you. Pours out his Spirit upon you for others. For them. And we need to say yes, Lord, to both. Amen? And so in, I think in terms of finances, resources, abilities, gifts, talents... All that we have, grace gifts that are placed in our hands. And I believe the same thing. You get some of that in you for you, but you get it for others. This is to empower and help and reach and touch the lives of others. And so we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. I want to keep going. Literally, this is the next screen. Literally thousands of passages in the Bible deal with the subject of money. It's a powerful tool, like most things can be used either for great good or for great evil. In this chapter, we'll explore both the dangers and the opportunities that money brings to a follower of Jesus. We'll also examine our attitude toward money to see if we view money as a means to an end or as an end in itself. So let's take, we'll start right there. Number one, we're not going to go through all of these. I'm going to just highlight a few. Number one, if you're in chapter 10, lesson one, according to Jesus' parable of the sower, you remember that parable? There were four kinds of soil that was sown into. He says, what can choke out God's word 
and cause it to be unfruitful. So I have that up there on the screen for you, Mark chapter 4. It says this, still others, when Jesus unpacked the parable for him and said, let me tell you what this means, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life. Remember in Philippians 4, Paul says this, be anxious for nothing, unless it's a really big deal. No, he says, be anxious for nothing. And he literally meant nothing. Don't be anxious for anything. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Gratitude keeps coming up in all the major things. Gratitude. He says, let your requests be made known to God. And then he gives a promise on that. He says, and the peace of God that passes all understanding. That means supersedes, goes beyond. Can't wrap your mind around it. Don't even try. Just receive it. The peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard. Love that word guard in Philippians. It's the word garrison. It's literally as though you have a, a military force around you, a SEAL team or a, or, a, or a SWAT team around you, literally guarding your heart and guarding your mind. And who today doesn't need their heart and their mind guarded? Right? It's the peace of God that does that. The Old Testament equivalent would be the word shalom, which means nothing missing, nothing broken, complete, whole, integrated. Talk about the word integrity. We talk about a person that's integrated, whole. In the New Testament, it's the same word, but it's in the Greek. It's the word irene. It's the same meaning. So you think in terms of that kind of peace is what is supposed to be reigning on my life. And he says this, this is what happened. The worries of this life, verse 19, the deceitfulness of wealth, there's a highlight there for you, so that's what we're talking about, and the desires for other things. We would call those distractions today. Do you think we live distracted lives? Oh my gosh, no doubt. And desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. I mean, who has not experienced and are experiencing that now? But he says, what can choke out God's word and cause to be unfruitful? Worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, desires for other things come in and literally choke the word out, making it unfruitful. Number three, I'm skipping number two. I'm going to move through these. What are some worries of life that choke out God's word? Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to study the Bible or pray, as soon as, I mean, it's, it's like we can do just about anything and be focused until we start praying. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jerry, you've mentioned about praying out loud. And one of, my, one of my things about the power of words is that I like to pray out loud and I like to agree with those who are praying so that my mind will stay on track. I don't go off the rails. So uh, I mentioned Glenn. He was a firefighter uh, down in Chico, California. Uh, we lived in the high desert. He was one of our elders. I was on staff at the church. And he always would say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. When anyone was praying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And I picked that up. Now, I go back to some conservative churches, and I'm the only person saying it. I'm hoping others are thinking it, but I'm going to say it out loud. And that, that might be a little indulgent for me, but it's because I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to stay on track because the Word talks about the power of agreement. So I'm trying to stay in agreement so that I'm with you in that prayer. But I'm also encouraging the prayer. Because if you've ever been praying and it's dead silent, it's dead air, like when your AM radio would go off, 
You know, the DJ forgot to change the record back in the day, and there's just dead air. How many know that's very unnerving? Well, it's very unnerving when you're praying and you wonder if anybody's hearing you and you're in a room full of people. So I learned, and others have picked up on this, where we agree out loud. I pray out loud often and a lot, especially in my truck, turn my cab into a cathedral, and pray and sing and worship, but also in agreement. So if Russ is praying in a staff meeting or if anyone else is praying, I'm going to agree out loud. And it's not so I can be known. It's so I can stay on track. It helps me. So I want to encourage you in that. So listen to this. What are some of the worries of life that choke out God's word? And here, here it is. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. So we already heard from Philippians 4 when Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Now Jesus is coming along saying, don't worry about your life. And you have to understand, he was talking to people who were under the hammer of Rome right now and who not, did not know what was coming next. They were massively taxed. They were in poverty. Rome had invaded Israel, the land of God, the holy land, and they were under Roman rule, and they were, some were forced into slavery, some would lose their houses and homes, and some would be beaten just to set an example for a whole village. So they'd just come in and arbitrarily beat somebody. And they were living like that, and in the midst of that, Jesus has the audacity. That's because that's how it feels when you hear that and you know the scene. And he says, I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink. And there are a lot of them were just in abject poverty. Or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? He's trying to elevate their thinking beyond their current circumstance. That's called rising above your circumstance as opposed to living under your circumstances. Remember I talked about that, how you talk to people and go, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. So, well, I don't want to live under the circumstances. As a follower of Jesus, he's actually saying elevate this thing. Paul told us in the book of Colossians to set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth, right? So we're told and we're, we're exhorted to constantly, we're admonished to look up, look up, look up. Because there's a lot more going up here than there is down here, amen? So look what he says. Don't worry about this. Verse 28. And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the leaves of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. He's saying, you're so consumed about what's right here in front of you, you're missing the bigger thing. That's what Jesus is trying to help them see. Jerry? Yes, it is. Every waking hour was consumed with labor or acquiring food for sustenance or clean water. So he was speaking to the very thing that sustained their life. And he's saying, don't worry about your life. That's pretty heavy. That's a big deal. Now, I will say this. He said this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this in here before. Sermon on the Mount is a throwback to the law that was given. It's, it's, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount just objectively, there is no way on this green earth that we could live out the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, those teachings were so lofty. Those ideals were so high. But here's the beauty of it. You don't have to live it out. 
He wants to live his life through you. We're hidden in Christ, according to Colossians chapter 4 or 3. We're also, he says, Christ in you and through you, the hope of glory. The hidden mystery has been revealed. So now he wants to live his life not only in us, but through us, right? So it's actually Christ who begins to live through us that can pull off this stuff. We can't. He's the only one who ever did. And he's showing us in that teaching the same thing that the law showed us is that we cannot do it apart from him. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a list of, of rules that you can check off on a list and throw into, a, throw into an Excel spreadsheet and say, okay, I'm doing pretty good today. Oh, I violated that one. Ooh, never have I made that one. I, you know, so I give myself a, a, a D plus today because I've had a bad day. That is not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to make you realize what he says in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do, help me somebody, nothing. nothing. So it's this utter, absolute or dependence upon Jesus where it says, and remember Paul corroborates himself over and over and over. He says, you have died and you are now hidden in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So now it's Christ living his life in us and through us to actually fulfill the kingdom of God, the will of God. And I'm telling you, that takes a massive weight off of my shoulders. Massive. And I've, I've likened, just to say how absurd sometimes we can be, is that we try to do this thing in our own strength, and it's literally like, like you're carrying a bag of lead down a hot, dusty road, and it's 98 degrees and 87% humidity out here, and somebody stops to pick you up, and you're like, thank you, and they're like, hey, jump in the back of the truck, and you crawl up in the truck with your bag of lead, and instead of setting it down in the truck and resting, you continue to carry it on your back while you're riding in the truck. It makes no sense. It sounds absurd, but we do this all the time. We're like, I, I got this, Lord. I got this, Lord. And he's ready for you to say, I give up. I surrender. I don't have this. I don't have this figured out. I don't really know what's next. Don't you love what the centurion said? When he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yes. I pray that prayer often. Often. Jesus did not rebuke him for his unbelief. He loved the fact that he was understanding yes. the principle. Yes, I believe, but what I don't, you have to make up for it. He understood that Jesus made up the difference. Jesus came alongside of him. And that, that child was raised up that very hour, Scripture says. I love that. So we, why get in the truck with a backpack full of lead? Why not just set it down and let the truck carry you down the road, right? That's what it means to be in Christ, hidden in Christ. He's carrying you down the road, and he's carrying the weight that you're bearing as well. Amen? Hey, life is tough, is it not? Come on. Let's just, and if you woke up and checked your pulse today, it's just tough. Yes, sir, Paul. I mean, you know that in the human condition, <laughs> we are kind of gluttons for punishment, aren't we? Why is that, you think, Paul? I don't, I don't really know what that weakness is in us, but we just want to feel that through that suffering, somehow it'll make mm. us better people mm. or something. I'm not sure what that is. Wow. Uh, you, you're hitting on something there, Paul, because it's so true. We almost feel like if I had a flog in my hand, I would just flog myself, you know, because I've been a bad person today, and I, I want God to see how contrite I am. 
I want God to see because then I may earn his favor and, and maybe he'll, he'll grant me grace and mercy, you know, because I know how bad I am. Isn't that something? Along with that, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, louder, louder, a little bit louder, Max. God already knows your yeah. heart. He already knows your heart more. He knows me better than I do. Yeah, yeah. Say it loud. So, um, loud and proud, brother, because that's important. So with that, what you're saying there, uh, that is so true as, as humans. Yeah. You know, but I, I kind of go back because I'm, something that's going through my mind with now, so, someone I know, going through a hard time right now, very difficult. Okay, no one over there can hear you, so you got to speak someone up. Someone that I know is going through a very difficult time with a relationship to where I just found out that she is so bound into that relationship that she tried to take her own life. Mm. Okay. So with that, and I've spoken to her before, and I said, listen, you've got to just cut, cut your losses because whatever you've gone through, what God has in store for you is nothing compares to it. But why as humans yeah. we continually go back as a, as the word says, as a dog goes back to his mm, mom. Mm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. We, we just keep, and we go back. It's like the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt. Because in their mindset, they had three squares a day. They just forgot they were getting beaten for it and working till they dropped dead. You know, but, but we forget sometimes how bad it was and we romanticize the past. And once we give it to... Somehow in ourselves, we have to get to a place to where we just give it to God. Yeah. And the minute you give it to Him, He takes it, but then you play that tug of war. Wait a minute. <laughs> I love that scripture in James 4 8, and I say it a lot because it's so important. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. It's just initiate some movement. Just lean in, lean toward Him, and He'll draw near to you. And He loves you that much. And you nailed it when you talked about He knows the condition of the human heart, He knows our frailties and our weaknesses, and yet He loves us. And He beckons us to come close. He beckons us to come near. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm t I prayed that prayer today, actually. I was driving in. I said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's just continuing to grow. I want to grow and expand and continue to learn in that. I don't ever want to feel like I've arrived at some level. There, there is no plateau in the kingdom. Just so you know, there's mountains and valleys, but there are no plateaus, right? There's no flatlands. So, so you're either, you know, going and going. So, land the plane on this. He says this, verse 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. I remember as a brand new Christian reading that, so much of that didn't make sense to me. When I read that sentence as a brand new follower of Jesus at 19 years of age, I went, whoa, now that makes sense. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about it itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I would try my best as a new follower of Jesus to lean into that and go, okay, I'm not supposed to worry. So I'm going to let go of tomorrow because all I have is today. Really, all, practically all I have is this moment that I'm in. So I'm going to try to live in the present and say, right now I'm okay. Tomorrow's a little scary, but right now I've got food on my table. I'm breathing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm here. So we, we grow into that. We lean into that. Let's keep moving forward. The dangers of wealth. This is in lesson one. For most people in the first century, food, drink, you said this earlier, food, drink, and clothing were much more matters of life and death than they are for many today, at least here. 
So if Jesus told people back then not to worry about these things, how much more should we not succumb to the worries of life and the stresses of life? Do you ever, I don't know about you, but nature speaks to me a lot. I love nature. I love the outdoors. And so where we live, there's some hills around us. We're sort of in a valley. Uh, I've mentioned this. I've posted it. There, there's a hill behind our house that's called Forgiveness Hill, and there's a big cross on it on 87. You've probably seen it as you're going to Comfort. So I step out on my porch, and I see that hill, and I see that cross. That's part of our, felt like our sign, this is where I want to live. I, I want to step out and know, um, know that. It's just a huge reminder. But every day when I step out on my back porch in the morning with a cup of coffee, and I sit down and look up at that cross, and the sun starts to come up kind of behind it. The word that comes to my mind is perspective. The Lord has constantly given me a fresh perspective. So I may have fears, concerns, you know, this, this whole transition from Oak Hills to Bridge. It's not a cakewalk, folks. This has been the most stressful thing we've ever engaged in our lives. I am not playing. And so this has been intense. It's been the spiritual warfare around this. Oh, I tell you, it's, it's hard enough logistically, but I'm talking about the spiritual warfare is at an all-time high. And it, it, you know, I've always heard people say, higher levels, bigger devils. Man, that, man we must be getting on up there because we must be in the stratosphere. And I'm just telling now, here's what we know. We win. That's right. Right? In the end, we win. In the meantime, we win too. So that's the beauty. It's a win-win deal for followers of Jesus. So we're not on the ropes. We're not under the circumstances, but I'm telling you, it's been intense. And if I am not careful, my mind can get consumed with this stuff. And I can find myself waking up at 3 every morning and saying, Oh, Lord, please help me get back to sleep. And then I pray for everything I can think of just to try to wipe the... Lord, is there anything else? You know what I mean? Please, let me go to sleep. And then I get up in the morning and I go and I step outside and I see that hill and I just... The word that comes to my mind is perspective perspective because it's so beautiful and it just reminds me of the cross on that hill and then I have another hill when I walk out of my garage that looks just like Spring Hill Tennessee which is where we lived and it's just it's another reason why we wanted to live there is because it's a reminder of, of a really impactful time in our lives so I walk out and I see that hill that's in the evening when the sun's setting a certain way as a look and I step out there and the Lord whispers perspective I'm giving you perspective. I've created all this. Look how amazing this is. And yet you're so worried about all these things. You're acting like Martha instead of Mary sometimes. And so as we run through the tape and crunch time here, you know, we're trying to shake off the Martha complex, embrace Mary, and just go, wow, God, you're amazing. Let me just sit at your feet here for a sec before the day gets started. And he's been, he's been doing some beautiful things in that. But perspective is a powerful thing. Number four, if you're looking at that, lesson one, number four, it is impossible to serve both God and mammon or money, currency, Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise. Those are strong words. Do you see a lot of in-between there? Do you see a lot of gray area in this statement? He says this, you cannot serve both God and and money. Interesting too in the next verse, notice what it says here. Just go to the next slide Russ. Jesus never made such a statement about anything else. He, never, he did not say you cannot serve God in power. 
God in sin, God in career, God in self. Why not? Because people know instinctively that they must serve God alone. But because of the deceitful nature of money and wealth, many people are convinced they're serving God when they have actually become slaves to money. And that's, we've seen that. We've seen that happen. Whether we've seen it publicly or we've experienced it in our own lives, where we have found ourselves, and it's so subtle. Remember the song, I know you may, Casting Crowns had a song called Slow Fade. It's a slow fade. It's not something that just sneaks, that, that just is in your face, and you're suddenly like, oh, I know what this is. It's so subtle. It's the frog in the kettle syndrome. And you find yourself not even realizing you're sliding into that. It's a slow fade. And so, um, Number five, keep moving through that. What can happen to those who are eager for money and want to get rich? First Timothy 6, 9 says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So that says that money is a root of all evil, right? Oh, thank you for correcting me. Good. So, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. By the way, we're showing the pitfalls, but we're going we're gonna to turn the corner in just a minute. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I've watched it. I have woken up on days and thought, wait a minute, I'm after the wrong things here. And, it, and it's a course correction. It's repentance and move forward. Verse 11, what should we guard? Let me tell you the best thing that ever cured me of that was losing everything twice. The best thing and worst thing that ever happened to me was I lost everything twice. It was beautiful. God stripped. When every crutch and prop is knocked out from under you, you have one place to go and that's up. It's to him. And I'm telling you, he will come in and he will, he will pick you up and he will take your feet out of the miry clay and set them on a rock. And I'm telling you, I know the goodness of God. And you know what that does when you've lost everything twice and he's brought you back? Is that you have no fear of losing it again. Freedom. It's just freedom. You just do. Risk becomes your middle name because it's like, so what? It's happened before and God was there and... And actually, some of the fellowship I experienced with Jesus in the middle of that was some of the sweetest fellowship I've ever experienced. Because when you're totally, utterly dependent on Him, yes. it's amazing how He just welcomes you into, into His arms. Amen. So I'm not afraid. Uh, I'm not driven by security like I used to be when I was younger. It's like, hey, God's good. God can take care of it. Uh, easy come, easy go, and it'll come again. And it might go again. It, it's okay. That's the beauty of it. It's okay because he's good. He's good no matter what the circumstances. Amen? So it does that. Again, perspective. Perspective. Listen to this. What should we guard ourselves against? Luke 12. Then he said to him, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is Jesus speaking. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, lesson two. Having established, this is the next thing. Having established the dangerous nature of money, now we can look at some of the positive things the Bible says about money, abundance, and prosperity. Just because something is dangerous doesn't mean we should never use it. For example, cars are dangerous, but that doesn't mean we should stop driving and walk everywhere. Can I get an amen? 
especially on a day like today. It simply means we need to obey traffic rules. In the same way, the proper response to the dangers of money is not to be intentionally poor. And some people have responded that way because they think that, the mon that money is the root of all evil and they misunderstood. It's not money, it's the love of money. And there's, that sounds subtle, but it's a massive shift. And they're worlds apart. So the proper response is not to be intentionally poor, but to handle the money God gives us according to his principles. And that was one of the things, the values of working for Dave Ramsey in Nashville. And I'll share a little bit from that experience in just a minute. Because I was working for the money guy. Very fascinating culture there. Uh, in fact, I was talking to two of my friends that are working there today. But fascinating culture. And their take on stewardship and money. And one of, the, one of Dave Ramsey's passions is to take the negative connotation of biblical stewardship out of the church and bring a positive light to it because it's, it's been tainted through the years. It's become a negative thing. But stewardship's a blessing. So I'll share a little bit of that in just a minute. Verse number one, if you're looking at this in lesson two, who gives us the ability to produce wealth? In Deuteronomy 8, it says this, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers, as it is today. All we're saying is, and all this is, is He's our source. He's our source for everything. He is our source. I love what Bill Lovelace says, the title of his curriculum is, Living Life from a New Source. And it's recognizing that He's the Lord. He's King. He is our source. Not our stuff, not our job, not our paycheck. He's our source. Listen to the next one. Uh, number three, if you're following through your book there, it's on the screen. What do the following verses from Proverbs have to say about prosperity? By the way, the word prosperity means good success. So if you read that, and you, like you see in um, Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, and you'll have good success. He's saying you'll prosper as you go. That's what it literally means. So... It says this, what do the following verses of Proverbs have to say about prosperity or God's provision? Proverbs 10, 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. He's comparing, juxtaposing the wicked and the righteous. Proverbs 10, 4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. And there's more there if you want to look in your own book and do your own uh, study there. Number four, what happens when we give? What if we give with small measure and what if we give with a large measure? Luke 6.38, familiar passage. Give and it will be given to you. That's pretty basic right there. Pretty clear too. Amen? And that's this, I'm going to, I'll probably won't have time to go too deep into this. But, but I'm going to talk a little bit about my view on tithing. You've, if you've noticed, I don't use the T word. I use the G word, generosity. Because I'm New Testament, New Covenant. And so there, there's a reason. I'll, I'll share a little bit about that in just a minute. Look what the scripture says here. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I read that verse, and I don't add or take away from it. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear, and I've watched this principle at work in my life in a practical and pragmatic way. Um, 
I'll talk about the tithe in just a minute. I, I think it's important. Number five, how does the law of sowing and reaping, have you heard it ever stated that way? The law of sowing and reaping, the principle of sowing and reaping, apply to money. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. It's pretty simple, and it's a farming analogy. Now, I grew up in West Texas in the middle of cotton fields, so I get that. It makes sense to me. A farming analogy works. So I have a picture of what that looks like. I can't even imagine Mr. Carpenter getting out there in his John Deere 4430 tractor and deciding, I'm going to plant less seed this year because it's going to save me some money on the front end, and then wonder why he didn't get a bumper crop that year when everybody else around him did. It's because he withheld the seeds that would produce the harvest. Again, it's a farming analogy, and it makes sense in my mind. Number six, what kind of giver does God love? I love this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Does that say anything about a tenth? Or a tithe. No, it doesn't. It says each man should decide in his heart what to give. Decide in his heart what to give. So there's something in here that when my heart is aligned with Jesus and I'm, in right, I'm rightly related to him, he actually tells me what to give. And I have to tell you something. Under the new covenant, I'm not 10% his. I'm 100% his. The scripture says that I have died and my life is now hidden in Christ. That means I'm dead. I'm walking dead man. Walking dead right here. It also says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, it says, For you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life we now live in you and through you, the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. So there's another place where Paul reminds us we're walking dead men. So under the new covenant, it's not a, I'm not putting a calculator to this thing. I'm saying, Lord, what do you want me to give? And then I'm actually listening and then I'm saying, I'm quick to obey. So it may be 10%. It may be 5%. It may be $15 to somebody that the Lord says in line over at, over at the store to give or pay their grocery bill or buy that person a cup of coffee or pay for their meal. It could be, but here's the deal. When we have an ongoing relationship with a living Lord and we're walking with Him, He'll talk to you all day long. And it's not a struggle to hear these things. When you hold these things with a loose hand, it's fun to let it go. Because when you believe the Scripture, you know it's coming back anyway. I don't pay for your meal to get my meal paid for. I pay for your meal because it's a blessing to give and be generous. And I look a lot more like my father when I'm generous. Because he gave the best he had in Jesus. Amen? So when I give the best I have, guess who I look like? I become the spitting image of my dad. By the way, you know where spitting image came from, right? It's actually spirit and image. It's not spitting. That's, that was an old black legend. It's a spirit and image. It would say, you're in the spirit and the image of your father. You look like your father and you act like your father. You're in the spirit and image of your father. Not spitting. Spitting image of your father. You know, no, it's the spirit and image of your father. And guess what? We're in the spirit and image of our father. And we look a lot like him when we're generous. Amen? Steve? Oh, I knew you would. I thought about you as I was preparing this, actually. <laughs> 
Okay. Jesus told the Sadducees and Pharisees, you should tithe. Okay. Absolutely. I agree with that. I find the tithe as a useful spiritual discipline to get me started in the right idea. So I would agree with that in principle. But theologically, I couldn't camp on that as that is a law of God. So in principle, I would say that is a great place to start. You need a baseline? Start with the tithe. That's great. I was taught the tithe as a young Baptist boy, of course. And, uh, you know, so I got out my pencil, you know, my number two lead and my big chief tablet and figured it out, you know. Didn't take long with what I had, but. Yeah, yeah. That's, and here's, this comes back to where I think it's critical. It's a first fruits issue more than an amount issue. So let, we'll talk about that in a sec. What shall we he says, give God what's God's. Yeah. And give Caesar yeah. what is Caesar's. No, no yeah. He said, render under Caesar what's Caesar, give unto God what's God's. And that's beautiful. I I contend. Go ahead. Go ahead. Notice in there, you this part about the spirit in you living this relationship and all that stuff. And this is more about me and how my mind works, but look at that. Notice where you decide. You decide your heart, not your mind. There you go. There you go. There you go. Good distinction there. <laughs> yeah, in fact, the scripture talks about God loves a cheerful giver. I, there are times when I've seen people not looking cheerful giving. I'm just saying, you need to get a hold of the scripture and smile a little bit because you're, you're crying, but it's not for the right reason. You know, <laughs> crying because you see the plate going away. But, uh, but. Again, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. A heart aligned with Jesus is going to know. There, whether you break out your calculator or not. Again, that's that issue of can we unequivocally say tithing is not a New Testament or New Covenant issue. Some would. And they pretty, they're a lot smarter than me and can contend a lot stronger than I am. I just know as I've grown in this and walked in this, I do not see precedent where the New Testament under the new covenant of Jesus teaches that the tithe is the baseline for it. So he in his conversation and again context is king back to his argument with the Pharisees he was arguing with the fact that they were following the old covenant laws trying to to the teeth and he's saying you tithe you give cumin you do all this and you think you're earning points with God. So he was using that as an example, but I don't know that it was a biblical precedent for tithing or not. So, but I do not believe that we are under that curse. Jesus became a curse on the tree, Galatians 3 tells me, and he took that on and be, actually became the curse. So Galatians 3, we could go really hardcore on that down about what Jesus did to the law and how he became the curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on that tree, Galatians 3 says. So he became a curse for us. He took that on us, which means we do not come under that curse. We are in Christ. We are under a dispensation of grace. We are New Covenant, New Testament believers. Amen or oh my? Amen. Kelby. Sure. Oh, oh yeah. It's what you have 
have up there, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty. Let it spring up freely from the joy of giving, all because God loves hilarious generosity. <laughs> hilarious generosity. You know what I love about that is that when people are giving from their heart, they do give with joy. It's amazing how when people have approached me through the years, whether it's here and it's happened here many times, and people have a gift to give, a financial, they're so excited about it because they're doing what God moved them to do. It was not under compulsion. It wasn't under guilt. It wasn't manipulated. Oh gosh, I can smell that stuff from 10 miles away. And I will run like Forrest Gump the opposite direction because I just can't stand that stuff. But when it comes to aligning my heart with Jesus and saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Jesus. Not only will I give, I'll go. I'll go and I'll give. So, I mean, it's all part of the same thing. Is that we are 100% in, not 10% in. I'm all in. Period. I pushed all my chips to the middle of the table with Jesus. And so, it's whatever he says. And I have to tell you, and I mean, this isn't bragging, but we, we ran past 10% a long time ago as a family. We just, we're not going to be relegated or anchored to an amount. Just be, you know, as though that's the place to be. So, so that's, that's like in the dust years ago. Also behind the pulpit, I've heard before, is that, uh, you know, 10%, 10%, and then God will allow the nine tenths to be stretched more. I had a problem with that. And I, you know, it, first tenth is God's anyway, correct? We're talking about tithing, that's God's anyway. So how, do you, how are you left with nine tenths? <laughs> yeah. To me, it's all his. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, ten percent, whatever. I mean, you know, there is precedent in Scripture in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where they brought their first fruits, and and it was marked as ten percent. They called it a tithe. In fact, I think I have it in here. Let's keep going. So, what is God able to do for the cheerful giver? Look at that. Second Corinthians nine eight. Just read that in the Passion. That was great. And God is able. Look what He does. He makes all grace abound to you. Remember what grace is. Grace isn't swinging in a hammock on a summer day. Not that you'd want to here, but uh, maybe spring or fall, we should say, but to make it sound better. But what grace is, it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. Grace is power. God's power, God's strength, God's ability, God's authority, and God's favor to do what you cannot in and of yourself do. That's what Jesus was full of, grace and truth. And as you break and exegete the word down, you literally see it's power, strength, authority, favor, Ability, it's all of those things. So what's God able to do? And God is able to make all power, strength, ability, authority, and favor abound to you. Now, doesn't that make that come alive? That's the beauty of the nugget of the Scripture, those nuggets and treasures. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words... He wants you to be in such a flow of giving and generosity that he's just continually filling your bucket because you keep pouring it out into other people's lives. Our problem is, is we have a poverty mentality or a scarcity or a lack mentality. We're afraid if we let go, there won't be anything there. Is that consistent with Scripture? No. Is that consistent with... with I can't love too much because I've got to save some back for this person or this family. No, that's immature, and you'd say that's absurd. 
Well, I can't show too much grace because I've got to keep some for myself. That's absurd, but we do that with finances. We do that with resources. We do that with money. We think, I've got to keep some back because I've got to have some to live on as though God won't provide. He got you where you are, did he not? You're still here. Check your pulse. Still a promise, still a purpose. He will take care of you. He's not brought you this far. But here's the deal. You listen to him, not to some man, not to a pastor, preacher, evangelist, whatever, manipulating you into giving. Amen? And I are one, so I can say that. You give because he is impressed on your heart to do so, not because I'm clever with words. That's why I don't give a lot of attention to it on Sundays. I thank everyone for doing it. I'm, I'm truly grateful. I'm truly grateful. I'm a grateful person. And I am grateful for everyone who continues to sow and give. And when I say that every week, I mean it every week. Thank you. Because I know it's, it's a sacrifice for many. So thank you. But I'm not going to... If you ever sniff that out of me, come rebuke me. I'll give you an open, open door to come rebuke me if you ever sniff. Manipulate. You won't. But if you ever did, because I just won't go there. It's not, it's not worth it. I don't like that. People doing that to me, I'm not going to do that to somebody else. Amen? It's not worth it. But I will teach you what the Bible says about it. And that, in that, I will be bold. And I will be courageous with that because it's the Word. Yes, sir. Looking back at this whole Malachi passage introduces the concept of robbing God. And we should not rob God. And it has a purpose for what we give and maintain Tithes and offerings. And offerings to me is above your tithe. Yeah. But how would you say that, that, that tell people not to give? Uh, what is, I've never seen a Christian that, that, that did not give freely, prosper. I've never had. Yeah, I haven't either. I think because he's robbing God. God gave him everything, and if he doesn't show generosity back, how's he going to be blessed? Well, here's the thing, and you got to say, what does blessing? Is it an empowerment to prosper? Is it an empowerment to succeed? What does that even mean? But prospering, it goes a lot more than in finances. I'm talking about someone who's prosperous in heart. Someone who's prosperous in their mind, their mentality. Someone who's in integrated. They have integrity and they live that life. And you see that on their life because they leak life everywhere they go. That's somebody who's prospering. It doesn't mean they just got a promotion or they're driving a Maserati around town. It means that they have such a walk with Jesus that they are prospering in their soul, in their life, in their spirit. And those are the kind of people I want to be around. But you know what? I've never met somebody like that who wasn't generous. Because generosity is just a part of the whole package. We're, I don't even like isolating it, but it is a part of the whole thing. When you are aligned with him... And Christ is your life, as we read in Colossians in our identified series. Christ, who is your life. When he's your life, generosity just happens. It, love just happens. Grace just happens. Miracles just happen because these signs will follow those who believe. So I'm telling you, as we're aligned with him, and that's what the whole point of discipleship is. And trade secret, I'm giving it away. I do that a lot with y'all. The whole point is to get us aligned rightly with him. And in alignment with his word and with him. And when that happens, oh, you prosper. But you don't just prosper finally. You prosper in everything. Right. Your soul prospers. Everything prospers. And that's who I want to hang around.
Isn't that who you want to be around? Never, ever forget. He made it very clear to me that blessings are sometimes maladies and misfortunes you've avoided. <laughs> that's right. You don't know all the bullets you've died. Oh, brother. That's the hole you didn't step in, right? Stop sign you didn't run. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, let's keep moving. When talking about prosperity, the question is not, will God prosper me? The question is, what will I do with God's abundant provision? Oh, this is good. That's a good point right there. I didn't write that. When talking about it, the question is not, what, will God prosper me? Because when people are leaning into that, that tells me they already have a poverty and lack mentality. When they're begging God to prosper them. They're already coming from a vantage point of lack. There's a whole principle in that. I don't have time to go into it. The question is, what will I do with God's abundant provision? Well, I do know this. If you will steward well the little you have, he can trust you with more. No doubt. No doubt there. Listen to this. Dave Ramsey, I remember when we were having these conversations when I worked there, and we were talking about the definition of biblical stewardship. And they were batting it around, and it went around the room, and we were all talking about it. We finally landed on this definition. Handling God's blessings, God's ways. That's a simple way of saying it, but really that's what biblical stewardship is. Handling God's blessings, because first of all, we recognize that everything we have from Him is a blessing. He has blessed our lives. And, we, and what does that do? That immediately projects you into gratitude. How can you recognize that you're blessed without being grateful? If you're prideful, you don't understand blessing. If, if it's for vainglory, you don't understand. You don't get it. But when you're grateful, you understand all I have is His because it's from Him. And I'm grateful. And so that's His blessings. But handling God's blessings, and this is the key, God's ways. So how do we find out how to handle God's blessings and God's ways? We, hand, we do that through the Scripture, through the Word. But we also do that through our relationship with Him and having our heart aligned with Him. And when our hearts aligned with Him, He will tell you what to do. The God who spoke still speaks. The Spirit who acted still acts. Amen? Amen. Nothing's closed. There is no uh, dispensation or anything where that was then and that's different now. The same Jesus is the same Jesus. The one who says I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever is. Is. It's beautiful and it's awesome and that, that, takes, that lifts the lid of impossibility off of everything. All right, we got three slides and we're done. What did the Israelites do with the first portion of all God provided for them? Now this is in Chronicles and, and Steve, you alluded to this. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain. New wine, oil, and honey. That was their provision. That was their currency. And all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything, a tenth. So you see that under that, that season that talked about a tenth of, and that was something that became established as, as a law or a rule. Verse 3, or number 3, what happens as a result of giving the first part to God? Proverbs 3.10, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops. Then your barns, and he gives a promise, he attaches a promise to this. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. I love the thing, the first word that's used here is a word that we really need to probably dive into deeper as a culture here at Oak Hills, and that's the word honor. That's the word honor. 
Now, I love the fact that my God is somebody that I can, I can come before as a child. Oh, my gosh. I'm a son. And sometimes I'm just a kid in his presence. But there are other times when I come before him and he's king. He's king. He's Lord. And there's an honor that goes along with that and to honor him and really to learn to honor one another and prefer one another. And that's something we need to go down. That's a road we need to go down as a culture as we are developing not as a campus but as a church body. In a very real sense, we're sort of like a toddler right now where we're learning, even though we all come from other churches and we've all gathered here, but we're still young culturally together. Even though this thing's been going 10 years, it went 10 years as a campus. And now we're stepping into a whole new level. And by the way, as we cross this line and step it up, there will be a spiritual dynamic released on this church that's going to blow your minds because we're going to, even our mentality will shift, but in the spirit it will shift from campus to church. There's an identity that comes with what's about to happen. So get ready, get excited, and embrace what God is doing here because it's about time, right? Amen? So honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits. And the last one, hidden in Christ and Christ who is your life equals the new covenant. Probably what we will do at some point, I would like to rewrite some of the purple book, <laughs> this chapter particularly, but there's others too. And so I want to share just as we close this, Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. This is where I'm talking about alignment, getting our hearts in alignment with him. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Interesting to me that if we're hidden in Christ and he's seated at the right hand of God, where are we? Ooh. That puts you a lot further above your circumstances than you first thought, right? I don't know how high that is, but I, I am tell you it's higher than the ceiling. I'm just saying. So he says this. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And you can, you can so correlate this like a Thompson Chain reference Bible here. You can correlate this to what we read about uh, where he says what chokes out the word. You know, the, the, the desire for other things, the worldly concerns and cares. Be anxious for nothing. I mean, the scripture goes on and on. Jesus, don't worry about your life. Over and over you hear it. Don't worry, don't worry. What, and this is coming from the one who slept through storms. I think he's qualified to tell us that because he slept through the storm, right? It was the disciples that freaked out and woke him up. It wasn't the storm that woke Jesus up. It was them that woke him up. Amen? Because they were losing their minds. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life. I mean, think about the implication of these words. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. This is where I go all new covenant on you. Because this is where we live. We're hidden in Christ. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That places us far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. Which, by the way, the scripture says in Colossians, he already disarmed. Remember? So he's disarmed all this. So we're, our, we're above all of that. And yet we live like we're under it. But as New Testament followers of Jesus, New Covenant believers, we get to literally rise above it no matter how we feel, 
And no matter what we're thinking, we're already there. And so there's a mentality there where we're trying to line ourselves up and our mentality up and our spirit up and our heart up with what already is. We cry out for more of God and he's like, you got all of me. I just want you to wake up to the fact. Wake up to what is. I believe spiritual awakening is not some outside thing coming in. I think it's us waking up to what already is and what we already have. The scripture says you are complete in him, Colossians tells us. And we just covered all this in the book of Colossians. So spiritual awakening for me used to be, let's go have a revival. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and maybe he will this time. And we're like paupers outside the gate begging God to show up. And we're not paupers. We're sons and we're daughters of the king. We're not on the outside looking in. We're on the inside. We already are accepted in the beloved. We are already his. We're already hidden in Christ. We're already seated in heavenly places. We're already there, but we keep asking for it as though we're not. And then we wonder why our prayer doesn't get answered. Because he's saying, I can't give you what you already have. You just got to wake up to it. So when I say it again. It's already there. The coin's in the fish's mouth. It's already there. It's already there. And that's what my prayer has shifted from some outside spiritual outpouring and awakening. We don't need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need an awakening to the Holy Spirit who we already have. And we're already complete. We just need to wake up to it. And when we do, oh man, Katie bar the door, right? I don't even know what that means, but I'd say it anyway. My mama used to say it, so I say it like I know what it means. I think I know what it means. But anyway, we, we just, I mean, strap, it, strap your seatbelt on because I think when we wake up to what already is, there'll be no stopping this thing. Amen? Circle the airport. Don't let it <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. You're awesome. Let's pray together. Do meditate into this. Lay into this. Go back in your purple book. Read these scriptures. But remember, you are under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Be careful. Don't swim around in Deuteronomy too long. Exodus, come on. We're out. We're out of captivity. Don't go back to Egypt. Let's just stay with Jesus. Amen? Read the red. Pray for the power. Father, we love you. We honor you. We lean into Christ. We lean into the covenant. We thank you that even as we said a minute ago, Jesus hung on a tree. He became the curse. So we are no longer under a curse. Oh, thank you for freedom. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And Father, I thank you for your, our position in Jesus Christ. That we're hidden in him at the right hand of the Father. Far above all the stuff. Principality, power, might, and dominion. All those things that you've already disarmed. Because of the cross and the resurrection. And I thank you, Father, that you took it a step further. We didn't cover this, but I just hear this in my heart. You not only took the keys of the kingdom away from the enemy, the prince of the power of the air. You took them away and you defeated death. No death, where's your sting? And you handed those keys to us. You conferred authority upon us. And Father, may we open our hands and take the keys of the kingdom that you've given us. To learn what it means to bind and to loose. To learn what it means to walk in our authority. To learn what it means to never be under our circumstances again. To learn what it means to sleep through storms just like Jesus did. Because there's no fear. Because he understood his citizenship was in another kingdom. Give us grace to wake up. 
I'm asking a favor as a son to a good father. Lord, would you wake us up to what already is? And may it blow our minds. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. Love you guys. You're awesome.